to cause to you, you get a little mini course in Islam. Um, so we're going to go over briefly the main points of Islam and then I want to talk about the history, the Islamic invasion of India. Uh, it was a, uh, a very violent invasion which took place in four stages, which we'll, we'll talk about those four stages, the invasion. And um, I also want to make the point, which I've uh, debated with other scholars and which uh, I think is a fair and reasonable point, and that is that, um, well, as I said earlier in the course, if you look at the great world religions, great in the sense that uh, in terms of their impact on world history, not evaluating the truth of their claims, but just having great impact on human history, then we can say that the great world religions basically came from two parts of the world, from the Middle East and from South Asia. From the Middle East, of course, came uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and from South Asia, various forms of Vedic and Hindu religion, Buddhism, and Jainism, and, well, Jainism hasn't been a, such a powerful world religion, but at least Buddhism and Hinduism are certainly, are certainly two important world religions. And uh, so with the invasion of, this, of um, Muslim, well, raiders and then empire builders and so on, people, uh, different Muslim fighters and rulers came with different motives. But with, their, with the invasion of India, these two traditions, in a sense, came colliding together. They, they came crashing together. These two really, in, in some ways... You could say people are people and religion is religion. In some ways you could say that in India and in the Middle East, for all the similarities and for all the universalities and so on, uh, there were some significant differences in the whole approach to religion. There were significant differences as there were also significant similarities. And so you, something very amazing is having this clash of two great civilizations, you could say. And one of the main differences I want to point out, and these are very broad generalizations, you can find lots of exceptions, but I would argue that despite all the exceptions, you can go on all day and night bringing exceptions, at the end of the day, there's still going to be a significant difference. And all the exceptions and footnotes aren't going to make the difference go away. And so one of the main differences uh, to me is the difference between a dogmatic versus a philosophical approach to religion. And so I want to talk about that first of all. Again, these are broad, somewhat crude generalizations, but I think they're going to stick despite all the complexity and all the exceptions and everything else. And so dogma... Uh, well, dogma, uh, a principle or set of principles laid down by authority as incontrovertibly true. So the nature of dogma is if someone who considers themselves or whom other people consider to be an authority simply says, this is the way it is. And if you don't accept it, uh, you're wrong and there may be severe penalties for being wrong and uh, insisting on being wrong. So that's a dogmatic approach. Uh, 
to be dogmatic in, pop, in sort of common English means that it, it can entail a type of fanaticism. In other words, not being reasonable about it, just insisting without feeling a need to provide good reasons. Another thing about dogma is that it tends to be specific. And, uh, well, first I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by philosophy and contrast, and then we'll give examples of how you could approach the same subject dogmatically or philosophically, and the consequences culturally and politically and militarily for different approaches to religion. Um, philosophy tends to engage in abstract thinking. In other words, by abstract, that means, well, I should type this up, dealing with ideas rather than events, denoting uh, an idea, a quality of state, rather than a concrete object. To give an example, <coughs> just one example of how you could deal with the same issue dogmatically or philosophically. And that is, let, let's take a, um, a notion which is very important in Hinduism. And let's say the notion of the avatar. Uh, the downcrosser. The avatar meaning the notion that uh, God or a goddess or somehow divine power can actually descend into our human world, can actually intervene in human history in some way and do things, change the course of history. Now, a dogmatic approach would be that there is a specific, concrete avatar and, uh, for example, you might say an avatar is Muhammad, as a prophet, because there are different categories of avatar. And one category is an empowered representative of God, someone who is a soul, not God. However, someone who has, in Sanskrit, it can be called Shaktyavesha, which means someone who literally has been invested with special power by God, who has been given special authority by God to carry out God's mission on earth. And so uh, another example of an avatar, although they wouldn't use this word, would be Jesus. Another example of an avatar might be Krishna or Rama from the Indian side. Now a dogmatic approach would say, would be very concrete and specific. And it would say that this specific person is the avatar. It's not a general category. It's not, it's not, a, it's not an open uh, concept. It's simply a specific, concrete individual. This historical figure that came at this time, in this place, and did these things. And that's the end of it. And so if you don't accept that specific, concrete individual as the avatar, as the descent of divine authority into this world embodied in a human being, if you don't accept that, you are basically spiritual roadkill. In other words, you're, you're out of the game. So, a, a philosophical approach would be to say that there is such a thing as an avatar. It's a concept, and that is that in general, philosophically speaking, that God or goddess or whatever divine power turns out to be has the will, is willing and able to invest that divine authority or power in a human being in order to accomplish things on earth, or that God or goddess may come personally and just do it themselves. You know, if you want something done right, do it yourself. So, the idea that God can either invest power in someone or come and just do it himself, or herself, or themselves, or itself. 
I think we've uh, covered the bases here. So, now, therefore, it's my personal experience that in India, most, almost all Hindus I've ever spoken to, take it for granted, take it for granted, it seems obvious to them, that Jesus is in some way an avatar. They just, it seems like, duh. I mean, they just take it for granted, of course. <laughs> and you can see this also, uh, let's say, in the adoption of Buddha by the Vaishnavas, and uh, which you can interpret as a sort of a cynical political move, like, okay, Buddha has a lot of followers, let's adopt him, and, and, and so let's you know, form a coalition and get all the Buddha votes. You know, if, if everyone that's pro-Buddha is a vote for Vaishnavism. Or, you could see it less cynically and less politically as a simple recognition that Buddha was so powerful and did so much good in the world that it's obvious that God worked through him. And whether or not some of his followers, don't forget the Mahayanas, they thought that the early historical followers of Buddha were clueless anyway. And so, it, it's not only the Vaishnavas, interestingly, who said that the real significance of Buddha, his real mission, what he's really doing, was not known to his early followers, even the Mahayana. The main school of Buddhism says that too. So, in that sense, you could almost say the Vaishnavas are a kind of, uh, I don't know, heterodox Mahayana thing, but... So the Vaishnavas say that, yeah, Buddha did have a cryptic or a, 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 you know, a concealed mission, but, it's, but only someone who was empowered by God could do all that. So, because they have the category, they have the philosophical category of avatar. And wherever the category seems to fit, we've got an avatar, we've got a winner. Whereas... On the dogmatic side, there's no category. There's no philosophical category. It's a specific historical event. One time and one time only, this guy with this name was born in that place, and that's it. There's no philosophical category. There's nothing to apply elsewhere. I think it's, you know, you don't have to be, well, that precocious to see that the philosophical notion, the philosophical approach to religion is going to give you a lot of flexibility to be inclusive and to recognize God in lots of places. Whereas the dogmatic approach is going to give you basically no wiggle room. The, the dogmatic approach is you're sort of locked into a specific historical narrative and anyone that doesn't believe that specific narrative is a, well, technically a kafir, a non-believer who should be persuaded or terminated. At least that was the original uh, inspiration. So, that's the first thing. And so, what I would argue is, and uh, whether or not it's politically correct, I don't know, but I think it's historically defensible, that for all the exceptions, and there are many exceptions, on the South Asian side, there were many dogmatic people. On the Middle Eastern side, there were great philosophers. So this is not, these are not absolute distinctions. These are not at all absolute distinctions. And as I'll mention again, there was a time about a thousand years ago when the world as now perceived by ordinary Western people was kind of reversed in the sense that now many Western people have the notion 
that Western civilization is democratic, it's liberal, and you know, we have certain human rights, whereas there are certain parts of the world which are still, uh, well, to use a popular conservative Western term, they would call it Islamo-fascism. There, there, there are certain, obviously not every Islamic country is a fascist country, but that's a term which some people use. And there are parts of the world, like Saudi Arabia and others, where it's not what you call democracy. There is not religious freedom. And for say in Saudi Arabia, our ally, if you simply land at the airport in Riyadh, and you have a little picture of, let's say, Shiva, or Shakti, or Krishna, I mean, I, I've spoken to Hindus, because many Hindus work there, in various fields, and, and uh, had little, just little religious pictures ripped up in the airport because, uh, well, you can probably figure out why. So, the idea of, of, of a part of the world, if you go back a thousand years, the part of the world that was fanatical, intolerant, was Europe, of course. Europe with its great crusades and, and other uh, creative cultural programs. <laughs> and in the Islamic world, centered in Baghdad, there was a somewhat sophisticated culture, more liberal than Western Europe, more tolerant, more cosmopolitan, more eclectic. You had a very powerful Sufi tradition, which unfortunately was persecuted at a certain point. The Sufi tradition, I think, uh, was uh, a very impressive, and of course it still exists, but at one point was a very powerful part of Islam and very impressive in certain ways. Despite all these things, all these many exceptions, and again, these are not absolute distinctions, they're just rough distinctions, with many exceptions. Still, in general, in one part of the world, there was a dogmatic approach to religious truth. There is a particular story. <coughs> There's a particular story, whether it's an Old Testament narration, that God spoke to Abraham, or whether it was the story about the life of Jesus, whether it was a story about Muhammad, but there are specific historical narrations and you have to actually buy into those specific stories, those specific concrete historical episodes. We're not talking about philosophical categories. Jesus did not come to reveal a philosophical category, which people in other traditions and other religions can also fill and create sort of an eclectic, enlightened world. That wasn't the way the, the powers that, well, the, the people that actually took over the Jesus movement, that's a whole other story, that's not the way they interpreted uh, Jesus. And in the same way, there were tolerant, very bright, very philosophical people that followed Muhammad. But they're not the ones that ultimately uh, had the predominance of power. So that distinction between a dogmatic and a philosophical approach, I think, is a very critical one. And it's not unrelated to mention that the great philosophical traditions of the world, the cultures that actually produced systematic, these are all key words, systematic, comprehensive, uh, long-term, in other words, what didn't just pop up for a generation, long-term, systematic, comprehensive philosophical traditions were Western civilization, beginning with Greece, and South Asia and India. And the Middle East, for all of its other accomplishments, did not, in fact, produce independently a systematic, comprehensive, long-lasting, original philosophical system. In fact, the Islam, at the height of its culture, 
uh, was based on Aristotle. Great Islamic scholars, and there were many great Islamic scholars, uh, sort of preserved Aristotle. The reason we have Aristotle today and a lot of other Greek philosophy is because Muslim scholars preserved it when in the West they would have not, you know, might just thrown it in a bonfire or something. So, but still, so, so these are two approaches. And again, in India, everywhere you can find dogmatism, and in Islam you can certainly find philosophy, but in general, these are two approaches. And my point is, that was just the last thing, and then you can all uh, jump in, that when people who claim to be Muslims invaded India, they brought very powerfully into India, uh, much more than it had ever existed there before, a dogmatic approach to religion. And uh, that shook things up a lot, as we'll talk about. Yes? I was just wondering what role that Aristotle's scrolls or whatever played in Islamic scholarly study if they weren't really interested in philosophy. Well, there were people interested in philosophy. Okay. Actually, what happened, just, just to sort of jump ahead, yeah, something really nasty happened in 1256, and that is the Mongols, as in Mongol horde, uh, attacked Baghdad. Baghdad was this powerful... Because the Muslims had really been on this incredible roll. Uh, Muhammad appeared in... Uh, actually, wrote that down. But anyway, um, was it 560, in the 560s, and, and, and then it basically established Islam as a, as a religion, I think, in the 620s. And so from, so from then, from around, say, the 620s, for about the next 600 years, uh, the history of Islam, for the most part, was a history of success and expansion and victory. I mean, obviously, you know, there's sometimes things don't go so well. But in general, in general, it was just growing and expanding. And it's due, I think, to some extent, to the continuing uh, bias of our own Western educational system that we don't know so much about that. I was very shocked myself when I took a... Ages ago, I took a course in the history of Islam at UCLA, and um, there, were, there were very few people in the course. And I thought, what's going on here? Because, obviously, Islam is a very important part of the world, geopolitically, religiously, and everything. You'd think everybody would want to know about it, but, you know, hardly anyone wanted to know about it. Half people in the course were just, you know, kids born from Muslim parents that wanted to, quote-unquote, you know, go back to the roots or something. And in terms of Western people, hardly anyone thought that was relevant. And one of the most amazing... Military expansions in history, I mean, every much, every bit on the level of, say, Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar was the expansion of Islam after Muhammad, but, I mean, it's not something that everybody knows about. It. I don't think we've ever seen a, a Walt Disney <coughs> thing on that. So, anyway, I want to be fair, but so any questions on, on all this stuff so far? If not, we'll get that. Yes? Just like Buddha didn't uh, expand a lot when he was asked about where the soul comes from and stuff like that. Is it also true that when Muhammad appeared that he may have pre could have presented some very sophisticated philosophy but maybe the thing? Well, we don't know right now that. Yeah. So let's talk about what he did present. Okay. Um, <laughs> So let's talk about what, what Islam really is. This is a very rough, but accurate, I mean, general picture. Um, 
Well, the history, you, you probably all know the basic history. Muhammad was orphaned at an early age. He was, uh, he was I guess he sort of stayed with relatives. He used to go on caravans because that was sort of the basis of Arabian, the Arabian economy at that time. You're not going to do a lot of agriculture in Saudi Arabia for obvious reasons. It's a desert. And so they had caravans. They were traders. And, and, and Arabia is between these great affluent civilizations, the Fertile Crescent, and what is now Iraq, Mesopotamia, and of course Persia, and India, and the other side you have Europe, so they're kind of the middle people. And so they did all these, you know, they were traders. They would, they would have caravan routes because you had to get to the desert if you wanted to go way between Europe and Asia. So anyway, so he did that, and then he had what he felt were revelations, uh, and it says the essence of the revelation was monotheism. Of course, this is, Muhammad is born about um, 500 years after Jesus. Put it in perspective, about 500 years after Jesus. And, uh, of course, Judaism and Christianity were well known in that part of the world. There were Jews and Christians, in fact, in, in the Arabian Peninsula. But, um, so he had this revelation of monotheism, which was a biblical monotheism. If you read the Quran, it, it, a lot of it is... I mean, I don't mean this in pejorative sense, recycled Bible. In other words, it's the story of Joseph. All kinds of Bible stories retold in different ways. So it's very much a biblical monotheism. And Arabia at the time was very much polytheistic, and people would typically have little altars with all kinds of little figurines. It was kind of, you know, when in doubt, put it on the altar. Because it may have some divine power, and so, you know, if there's doubt about it, just go ahead and stick it on the altar. So they had all kinds of things on their altars, they were polytheistic. They had a somewhat uh, flexible, creative, moral system. <laughs> and so, uh, in that sense, Muhammad, his revelation, the, 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 the big, you could say the real major bullet points that he brought to his people in Arabia were monotheism and a much stricter morality, including improvement of the uh, position of women. Although even that improved position... Uh, probably would not impress many modern people. So, but it was an improvement. So, Islam, to be a Muslim, I mean, there are five basic points. You probably learned this before. There are five basic things you're supposed to do if you're a Muslim. One is, you know, la ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. I just became a Muslim. You're supposed to profess <laughs> that there's no God but Allah. There's no God but Allah. And Muhammad is the prophet. Muhammad. And so that you profess that sincerely. You say that and mean it. There's no God but God, and uh, his prophet is Muhammad. There was a great prophetic tradition in the Old Testament, you know, all the Hebrew prophets. It's one of the sections of the Bible. Elijah and Isaiah, and there's a whole list of prophets. These are people who are sort of like, how should I put it? Uh, in some ways, almost like uh, militant uh public intellectual shramanas. I mean, there were people that lived austere lives and, as the typical phrase goes, had the courage to speak truth to power. Because you had these kings, you had these rulers who do what rulers usually do. They became corrupt and, you know, tried to do everything they could to get more power and money. And so they would speak truth to power. And so in the same prophetic tradition, Muhammad speaks truth to power. And so he's accepted as a seal of the prophets. To become a Muslim you have to accept that the whole prophet thing kind of culminates and ends with Muhammad. He's, in other words, 
You have the whole prophetic tradition, Jesus also, to become a Muslim, you have to accept the New Testament, you have to accept Jesus, but not as God, but as a prophet. As a great prophet, but Muhammad's the last prophet, the best prophet, and the last word. So you accept the Old New Testament, but Muhammad has the last word, the last prophet. So you profess that, and there's no God but God. And this interpretation of no God but God was, was taken, well, to certain interesting lengths. Like, for example, no visual art. You can't draw pictures, even of the prophet. That's why he was so such a horrendous offense for some Muslims. When in Denmark, they did cartoons of the prophet. There was that whole big controversy. It wasn't just that they were, let's say, making fun of the prophet. They were very daring to just make a visual representation. So you won't see pictures of the Prophet, and much less of Allah, because even a visual representation is somehow what's called shirk, uh, which is the greatest offense, and that is to somehow compromise the sovereign, sovereignty and uniqueness of God by any type of visual representation, which somehow is, anyway, in their minds, uh, competing with God or minimizing God. So, there's no God but God. That's why uh, Islam, Muslim calligraphy became so advanced, because that's all that artists could do. So, like, if you were an artist, there wasn't much else you could do, except maybe, I don't know, landscapes and calligraphy. So, mosaics. Mosaics, yes, mosaics. <laughs> Another thing you have to do is pray five times daily toward Mecca. First it was toward Jerusalem, but then when the Jews, for some crazy reason of their own, refused to all become Muslims, uh, the prayer was then directed toward Mecca instead of Jerusalem. Third thing is you have to give charity. You should give charity. Tithe. And then there's a fast at Ramadan, and, uh, which is an austerity tapas, just like in Hinduism they have certain tapas, the austerity. And then finally, pilgrimage. At least once in one's life during the month of Hajj, one should uh, make the pilgrimage to Mecca. And so those are the basic principles of Islam. And of course, did meet people. With, now, another important thing is that um, the Quran is not a law book. It's not a. It, it's it's a it's something. It's a book claimed to be a revelation of God's truth, spoken uh, by God through the prophet Gabriel to Muhammad. Now, uh, when Islam actually started winning battles, they took over Medina. And then uh, went and, and then conquered Mecca, took over the Arabian Peninsula, and then it kind of exploded out of Arabia and started taking over all. Then how do you govern? How do you rule? Because you, the idea was we have to rule according to the Quran, according to the revelation of God, but the Quran is not a law book. So therefore you had the development of law schools, and there were only four major law schools in Islam. And the idea was, what is, quote-unquote, an Islamic, a faithful Islamic, constitution. And what do you do with non-Muslims? Because, I mean, there was the original idea in Medina and Mecca, you sort of, you know, you accept this new revelation or you're out of the game. But they learned that, well, that's not always practical. Because sometimes you conquer a place, but you're outnumbered like 10 to 1, and if you start killing people, there'll be an uprising. So, plus, I mean, there were actually Muslim rulers who didn't want to kill everybody. So, the idea is, what do you do? How do you govern? What kind of taxes do you impose? What do you do with non-believers? And, and just what's the law? So they developed law schools, which they tried to derive from the Quran. Some of them more liberal, some of them less. So the Zimmi people of the book, they declared the Jews and Christians were people of the book because at least they accepted the Bible. The Kafirs people that were not of the book. 
But when they came to India, when the Muslims came to India, there were just too many Indians, you know. So, uh, <laughs> what they eventually did was they said, well, they can kind of, there was one uh, sort of liberal law school called, um, forget it, I gotta tell you. They said, okay, they can also kind of be people of the books. They have some book or whatever. But, so anyway, now I want to talk uh, a little, any, there's no question about that. That's basically Islam. I want to talk about uh, the history, the actual history, this four waves of invasion of India. First one, in a sense, is the least significant. Uh, it was an invasion, I think, in 712 of Sindh. Sindh is now southern Pakistan. It's where uh, Alexander kind of got sick and eventually died in Babylon. In Babylon. So uh, it was just a local political problem and and. Uh, so Sindh, if you know the geography, that part of India is not that far away from the Persian Gulf. It's actually, they're not that, and there's always been trade going back thousands of years. So a political power uh, from the Persian Gulf basically sent an army and conquered a little kingdom in Sindh, or a medium kingdom in Sindh. And that was it. That was it. There was no real, uh, it wasn't really a missionary thing. It, they didn't, you know, it wasn't really an attempt to establish a big empire. It was just sort of local politics. And that was in 712, just 90 years after the establishing of Islam. I guess around 622. Then, uh, something worse happened. Uh, you'll see why I say worse. In, uh, starting in the year 1000, that is Muhammad of Ghazni. Muhammad of Ghazni. If you know India, if you go due north from India, you come to Central Asia, the, the Russian steppes and Central Asia. And... Uh, there were different kinds of Muslims. There were Muslims, for example, at St. Baghdad, who were very sophisticated, liberal, intellectuals, cultured people. Uh, and there were Muslims in Central Asia who were kind of extremely violent and not at all educated. So be precisely because Islam spread out over such a wide, vast area, there were people from all different kinds of, you know, different kinds of cultures, different psychologies, there were total rednecks, you know, born again, kill all the coffee people. And there were sophisticated, cosmopolitan, liberal Muslims. So the people that invaded India in the beginning tended to be the uh, lower echelon of Islam. And so I want to read you a few things about that. Uh, this is a book. Uh, Professor Sardesai teaches at UCLA. And... Uh, now, there have been other invasions of India. In fact, uh, I didn't write those, but uh, the background, I'll, I'll just give an idea. Because India, even though on the north you have the Himalayan mountains, it was never really like impenetrable. People always found a way to get in. So uh, there were the, as a result of Alexander the Great, Alexander came all the way into what is now Pakistan. There was the Greco-Bactrian, Bactrian kingdom. The Greeks kind of stayed and maintained a certain kingdom in Afghanistan, which is part of the Indian culture area. So there was that, and that was from 250 to 125 BCE. There were the Scythians, the branch of the Indo-Iranian Shakas, and they came into India, and they ruled, basically the same area was now Pakistan, part of Afghanistan. They ruled that area until about 395 CE. There was a Hun invasion. Uh, they, uh, the first half of the 5th century, and the Huns came in, and... Uh, 
That was the end of the Gupta dynasty in India, so there's a Hun invasion. Now, but all these previous invasions, the uh, Greco-Bactrian, uh, Bactrians, Indo-Scythians, the Huns, they sort of became assimilated. They had actually great respect for Indian culture, and they sort of got assimilated into Hindu-Indian culture, Sanskrit culture. When the Muslims came, of course, it was different. Uh, they obviously were not about to be assimilated by any other religion. So, a little bit about um, Muhammad. Um, so, this, I'll just read from this history book. A period of extremely violent contact, extremely violent contact between Islam and India. The objective of the invaders was plundering, looting, wanton destruction and death. Muhammad, and this is, by the way, an Indian author who's, you know, he's a real scholar, he teaches at UCLA, but uh, a lot of times you'll get, you'll read, a lot of histories of India are written by Western scholars who have their own take on things for various reasons, because, uh, well, I won't go into that now, but anyway, for various reasons they have their own take on things, but this is a, a good scholar at UCLA who's giving Indian perspective on what happened. <coughs> Uh, Muhammad of Ghazni has remained in Indian history as the epitome of cruelty and barbarism. He invaded India 17 times between 1000 and 1026. At first, he sort of, these were just raids. Now, these weren't really like religious wars because uh, there was another kingdom called Multan uh, and it said that Muhammad of Ghazni attacked the Muslim kingdom in Multan with the same ferocity and greed that he meted out to Hindu kingdoms. He did not bother to convert the indigenous Hindus in the areas he raided. In fact, there were Hindu mercenaries in his large entourage. So these were not religious wars. This was just all-out, brutal, violent greed. And, and uh, you know... Violent people who are going around looting and killing, you sort of, it's, I don't want to say it's a natural high, it, but it's, you do get into this sort of hyper-adrenaline state where you get a type of, I don't know you call it orgasmic pleasure, which I think is obviously evil, it's just killing and brutalizing. I mean, you can really get out of control psychologically. And these people, I think, were out of control. So that was the, uh, that was their calling card. Muhammad of Ghazni, who was just a raider. Uh, and then here's another point. Uh, Gujarat. Hindu temples of the Punjab. Hindu temples, the Doab region. Doab means the two waters. The, anyway. The land between the Ganges and the Jumna rivers. And Gujarat attracted him more because of their wealth, their destruction, the destruction of the temples, the destruction of Hindu temples, would win him support at his own court for Muslim divines. That consideration weighed most in his wanton destruction of temples after they were looted and in putting large numbers of Hindu devotees and defenders to death. An additional factor was the use of prisoners of war as slaves. Uh, the Punjab provided him and later the Gurs with an enormous supply of slaves. After satisfying their own needs, they sold the surplus surplus humans, as a commodity in the markets of Central Asia. So, uh, anyway, there you have it. I thought I'd also read something else, which is, 
the description to show you what was going on. There were certain temples in India where they were actually quite advanced in science. And, and if you read the history of India, what you find is that uh, before the Muslim invasion, India was, was competing as one of the most advanced countries in the world scientifically. And of course, uh, this was kind of uh, came to a screeching halt with this type of, as the brutality increased and the destruction increased. But in any case, they, they had some way to actually suspend deities in midair. And it was sometimes you know, using magnetic rocks. Or what the, the people were still not clear exactly what the technology was. But they would actually have deities suspended in midair. And so here's a description of a, the Somnath temple. Uh, and, and this is written by an Arab, contemporary. This is written by a Muslim. So uh, an Arab contemporary of Muhammad of Ghazni wrote the following about the Somnath temple and Muhammad's barbaric atrocities there. Somnath was a celebrated city of India, situated on the shore of the sea and washed by its waves. Among the one, this is the original writing of that contemporary. Among the wonders of that place was the idol in the middle of the temple, without anything to support it from below or to suspend it from above. It was held in the highest honor among the Hindus, and whoever beheld it floating in the air was struck with amazement, whether he was a Muslim or an infidel. The Hindus would go on a pilgrimage there whenever there was an eclipse of the moon and would assemble there to the number of more than 100,000. The ebb and flow of the tide was considered to be the worship paid to the idol by the sea. Everything of the most precious was brought there as offerings and the temple was endowed with more than 10,000 villages. In other words, 10,000 villages would pay their taxes to that temple. The edifice was built upon 56 pillars of teak wood. 56 pillars of teak wood covered with lead. Near the idol was a chain of gold weighing 200 mons, whatever that is. The Sultan, Muhammad of Ghazni, arrived there in December 10,025. The Indians made a desperate resistance. The numbers of slain exceeded 50,000. 50,000 people killed. The Sultan gave orders for seizing of the spoil. Now here's Al-Biruni. Al-Biruni is, was a, uh, actually a great scholar, linguist, Sanskritist, just, uh, who actually accompanied, who accompanied Muhammad of Ghazni in his raids. So along with Muhammad of Ghazni, you actually have a, a very learned scholar. And this is what he says. And he's working for Muhammad. I mean, Muhammad's his guy, his boss. He says, and, and, and in order to understand what happened to India, because sometimes people say, like, really stupid things, like, why is India a poor country, but, you know, they, they have a good culture, whatever. And, and so this is what Al-Biruni said. Muhammad utterly ruined the prosperity of the country. I'll repeat that. Muhammad, Muhammad utterly ruined the prosperity of the country and performed those wonderful exploits by which the Hindus became like atoms of dust scattered in all directions. Their scattered remains cherish, of course, the most inveterate aversion towards all Muslims. This is the reason, too. This is the reason. This is Al-Biruni, one of the great scholars in the Middle Ages. This is the reason, too, why the Hindu sciences have retired far away from parts of the country conquered by us and have fled to places which our hand cannot yet reach to Kashmir, Benares, and other places. So that's Muhammad of Ghazni. That's just the... Uh, anyway, any questions on that?
Yeah, it's a little shocking. So the next wave was, um, he was just a raider, but then a, uh, another Muhammad, uh, um, Muhammad of Ghur, G-H-U-R, then invaded, and actually he had the intention, almost two centuries later, Muhammad of Ghur conquered Ghazni, he conquered this other guy's place, and he, he wanted a kingdom in India. He also wanted to bring the wealth of India to build his own home country, and he actually wanted to establish a kingdom in India. And uh, now it's interesting. Also, again, a little comparison, a little little cultural. I mean, what happened is when he first attacked uh, Delhi, the area of Delhi, he met stiff opposition from Prithviraj, which means king of the earth, who was the uh, Prithviraj Chauhan, who was the king of Delhi, who actually, you know, defeated him and captured this Muhammad of Gore. But uh, following the Rajput, the, the martial code, the Kshatriyas, they had this code of honor, so he released him. He released him, which was a big mistake. So this Muhammad of Gore then went back, got more troops, came and attacked again, defeated him, captured Prithviraj, captured the same guy that captured and released him, and killed him. Anyway, a little comparative cultural studies. So, uh, they then established they then established the Sultanate of Delhi because Sultan the idea was that the um, I think I wrote this within the Islamic world uh, oh I didn't write it uh, they had a word Khalifa the word Khalifa which uh, in English was as Khalifa. The idea is that after Muhammad, they have to, they went through the process which sociologists call it the routinization of charisma. They had to establish a rational authority structure. So they appointed a caliph, uh, the caliph who was the temporal, you know, the worldly and religious leader of the Islamic community when it was united. The Islamic community eventually divided. The Shiites, the Shia group, felt that to be the caliph, you had to be a blood relative of the prophet. As, as Ali was. So you had to be somehow related to that family. And the Sunnis, who became most Muslims, where are they? Here they are. They believed, no, it's the Ummah. U-M-M-A. The Ummah, the community, the really the, uh, the authority actually comes through the community, the Ummah, and you don't have to be a blood relative to be the Khalifa. Now, because they still had this idea that the Khalifa was the temporal and religious head of all Muslims, at least they had that idea, so uh, the leaders in India became sultans because a sultan meant that you were a Muslim leader but you were under the khalifa. And they would do the, um, what do they call it, the kutab? I forgot the word. What's that word again? <coughs> in other words, when they would say the prayers and when they would be enthroned, they would do it in the name of the khalifa. But then, uh, I think around one, uh, 1256, when Baghdad was sacked, this was really a... a uh, just a complete uh, devastation for the Islamic world. Baghdad was a cultural and religious and even political center. And so all these Muslims who were invading India, they would, go, they would appeal to their Muslim brothers for help, for reinforcements, for uh, authorization, for, and, and so on and so forth. So when Baghdad fell, and it was a pretty nasty, I mean, talk about, well, if you want to talk about karma, uh, the the Mongol sacking of Baghdad was a horrendous thing in terms of the human suffering, what was done to men and women and children and so on. So when that happened, that was a major change in the Islamic presence 
By now, again, they have the Delhi Sultanate. But with the fall of Baghdad to the Mongols, and the Mongols eventually became assimilated within the Islamic world, but with the fall of Baghdad, the Muslim rulers in India were on their own. It's like, hey, you know, don't call home to Baghdad, because no one's going to answer the phone. And so they were on their own, and they were not terribly disappointed at the idea of being politically independent. Now they were, you know, they could become, they're, they're no longer under the caliph. Khalifa. They were independent, and in a sense, they really had to be Indians. And, and so, it sort of ushers in a new age, because when the Muslim rulers in India can't call home to Baghdad for reinforcements or whatever, uh, they really better get along with the local people. It, it, it creates this pressure that, uh-oh, we're just in India now, and there's nowhere else to go. So, uh, they really start to become Indians, and uh, there's a little more integration. Anyway, this Delhi Sultanate goes on. I mean, I don't know, like, how many atrocities you have the stomach for, uh, because there's a lot of them. But um, suffice it to say, the Delhi Sultanate went on for about 300 years. And then, uh, in... Let's see, where are we? Here we are. Uh, 1526, a gentleman named Babar invaded. He was actually a Mongol also. The word Mughal or Mughal is means Mongol. And so he invaded India and eventually, not immediately, but eventually overthrew this conglomeration of Delhi Sultans, because there were a lot of them and they fought each other and murdered each other. And there was even uh, a, a woman, actually, who didn't, uh, who at one time ruled, but mailed this region very quickly. Uh, Razia. Razia. Her father was the Sultan. Then her father bypassed his son, wanted her to be the next ruler, because she was the only one that had a brain in her, in her head. And so... <laughs> She eventually became the leader. But what happened is that she started giving special preference to her Abyssinian slave, Yakut Khan. Remember, she was a young lady. She was in charge. And, you know, a slave didn't mean low class. It just meant some guy who lost a battle somewhere or whose father lost a battle. So she started thinking this Abyssinian... Remember, it was, Islam started with the idea of making everyone equal, right? But anyway, he was a slave. And so because she was kind of falling in love with her Abyssinian slave although they're all Muslims, uh, there was a rebellion, and her boyfriend was killed, and then the leader of the rebellion was made the new leader instead of her, but he just married her, and said, well, forget the rebels, you know, I'm, I'm going to marry her. So then they killed both of them. I mean, <laughs> so husband and wife were both. So there was actually a period of hundreds of years when not a single, I don't, hardly any sultan <coughs> died in sleep. Anyway, so finally this conglomerate of warring sultanates was overthrown, and the Mughals came in at a new point. And it was this Mughal empire that came up against the British in a few, in a few centuries later, and we'll talk about that. So that's basically roughly the history. And uh, Wednesday we're going to talk about the actual religious interaction. I wanted to get sort of a historical framework. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting things, but we obviously don't have time to go over all of it. But um, there was a guy named Timur. Timur the Lame, who was, uh, if anything, worse than Muhammad of Ghazni. But that's the basic historical framework. And so, everyone, read the book. I mean, don't do anything between now and Wednesday except study and meditate upon the book that you're supposed to read. And then we'll talk about religious interaction on Wednesday.